thanks to Chrome Malt. This is actually thanks to that guy over there. This is Radio Brews News. Uh, as ever, I'm joined by my good friend, colleague, and all-round good beer guy, Pete Mitchum. Ladies and gentlemen, big round of applause for Pete Mitchum. Thanks very much, Matt. And normally at this point, I would say uh, this is Matt Kierkegaard, editor and, uh, of Australian Brews News, that, founding right. editor of Australian Brews News, uh, and it is a pleasure to be here. Normally, I would say uh, thanks, Matt, and uh, g'day, listeners, um, but it's lookers. Today, it is so lookers, it's quite tonight. unusual. So, and what a good-looking bunch! What a bunch of lookers they are! Exactly. Um, <laughs> no, I should say, don't, uh, don't encourage uh, no, you. I, I'm, we've got the editor of Australian Brews News, James Atkinson. This is the first time I think that we've uh, all been together. It's a very dangerous. Like first time, the, all in the same yeah. room. So the, the could empire could collapse if anything happened. Actually, if uh, anyone from CUB in line is the only reason that they're probably not taking this place out, uh, or Brewdog, or Brewdog, yes. Sorry, Jadeep. You know, we, <laughs> they love us. So um, looking around the room, there, there aren't too many people here that you haven't offended. So I think you're, <laughs> like nobody's, nobody's feeling left out. But we do so have a special guest with us tonight, Matt. We and, do. And how about with any, without any additional added or extra or further ado? We, we don't need to, but... But know, it's good, because I, I took a long time writing that out. He did. So uh, Dr Charlie Bamforth holds the titles of Anheuser-Busch Endowed Professor of Malting and Brewing Sciences and Distinguished Professor at UC Davis. He's been part of the brewing industry for over 35 years. And yet he still only looks 40. <laughs> he is formally... Yeah, don't, don't, don't overcook it. <laughs> he is formally Deputy Director General of Brewing Research International and Research Manager and Quality Assurance Manager of Bass Brewers. He is an honorary professor in the School of Biosciences at the University of Nottingham, England and was previously Visiting Professor of, Heriot, of Brewing at Harriet Watt University in Scotland. Charlie is a Fellow of the Institute of Brewing and Distilling and we should welcome all of the... Uh, executive of the uh, Institute of Brewing and Distilling, which is the reason that tonight is possible, because Charlie's out for the IBD conference. Um, and I know that there are a lot of brewers and uh, people interested in becoming brewers, so we might even have a bit of a chat about the IBD tonight, and uh, why, you, if you're not joining, you should be looking at uh, joining and uh, certainly studying through them. Um, he's a chartered scientist, editor-in-chief of the Journal of the American Society of Brewing Chemists. Can I do a lot of research. Well, just get to a bit of the bet. Playboy magazine, then, because that, that'll get a laugh. He's <laughs> <laughs> on the editorial boards of several other journals and has published innumerable papers, articles and books on beer and brewing and also written prolifically on soccer. His recent contributions have included The Brewmaster's Art, Beer is Proof God Loves Us, Reaching for the Soul of Beer and Brewing, the second of a six-part series. Mate, haven't you heard of punctuation? Oh, haven't you heard of cut and, and you heard of cut and paste? And the second of a six-part series on beer quality called Simply Flavour. Has anyone brought their books? Has everyone got any of these books? Because it is very well, yeah. Um, did anyone bring them to be signed tonight? Because I forgot my copy. Um, That's all right. You get, I, you get to leave ten minutes earlier. Well, I've, I've also got it on audiobook and Kindle, so I'll get you to sign my phone. Yeah. I'll sign my phone. <laughs> He was a member of the advisory board and a contributor of many entries in the Oxford Companion to Beer 2012. In October 2010, he was on the honour roll as one of the 20 professors who are changing the classroom in the US, and that was in Playboy magazine. They had, Playboy magazine had an honour roll. I think that's more amazing than the fact that Charlie was listed as one of the top 20 professors. <laughs> well, ordinarily, their honour roll has nothing to do with actual merit. <laughs> Um, now performing in his third official Radio Brews News recording, we can bestow, bestow upon him the title Friend of the Program. Please welcome Professor Charlie Bamforth. Thank you. What an introduction. Yeah. 
Now, I mean, all, all kidding aside, we are genuinely thrilled and honoured to have you. We've spoken to you a few times uh, by Skype, um, and it is much, always much nicer to have it uh, with beer in hand. So, Charlie, thank you very much uh, for joining us. It's a great pleasure. It's, uh, I love coming to Australia. Um, we have meetings, brewing meetings all over the world. And uh, I'm not saying it because I'm here, but the, the, the meeting I always enjoy the most is the Asia-Pacific meeting of the Institute of Brewing and Distilling. So it's good that we are here in Sydney. Now, you have been coming to Australia for a long time now. Um, have you noticed much uh, about the way that beer has changed in, in the country? Well, it's like, it's like the rest of the world. It's, it's getting more interesting because there's greater diversity, uh, lots of people who are interested in beer and brewing, uh, many aspiring to... Uh, develop their own companies and their own breweries. So uh, it's, all, it's good for the industry. Everybody benefits from it because everybody is uh, interested in it. Uh, the rest of the world, of course, just like uh, down here, um, a lot of rationalization and a lot of uh, change. So uh, we are living in interesting times, but uh, you know, the whole world is changing when it comes to beer. And, and uh, in many ways, it's a, it's a good thing. Now, I, I do tend to get myself into trouble sometimes asking the wrong question. Um, and I probably... You, you've led this one yourself. I've, se I've seen you mention it recently. So, um, sorry for asking you this up front, but you are from the States? Yes. No, I'm from England, but... Uh, but but, but I, most recently from the States? Yes, I, I admit that. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> <laughs> what the hell is a story with Donald Trump? <laughs> People say, people say, you're going to stay in America. I say, well, that depends. Um, can you imagine? Can you imagine him having afternoon tea with the Queen? I mean, can you picture that? Or, or having his finger on the pulse uh, with... Uh, uh, it's astonishing. Um, and really, it's, it's kind of scary. And the really scary thing is he's totally teetotal. Um, you know, if he was a drunk, you, you, you might think, well, that's, you know... But he's so not, he's, and he's, he's anti-alcohol, so you know, I'm scared in so many ways. But it's, so, it's <laughs> so it's him and everyone else that's not drinking his wine. <laughs> yeah, he's not drinking, he doesn't drink, he, apparently I, he, he's never drunk. And the, the worrying thing is his mother's Scottish, so uh, you know, you'd think he'd be half, half sensible. But, um, but, uh, but anyway, uh, no, it's scary stuff, but, um, but and seriously, it really is frightening. But have you seen the alternatives to the Republican Party as well, you know? <laughs> Uh, so, anyway, let's hope Hillary. God bless uh, Hillary. Now, one of the reasons that we uh, want to speak to you is the IBD is on. Uh, maybe we can just start by talking about what the uh, Institute of Brewing and Distilling is. Yeah, the, the Institute of Brewing and Distilling is a, a very long-standing and a very uh, proud organisation. It started as the, actually, the laboratory club in London in the late uh, 19th century. And uh, it's... Uh, we're around 130 years old now. Um, there's been various changes and, and uh, mergers, uh, including uh, the expansion of the name to Institute of Brewing and Distilling. Um, it's basically a member society um, that have members all over the world. Um, they are divided into sections, and there are five that is based in uh, the British Isles, uh, but there are three international ones, one called the International Section, uh, which is everybody other than in the African section and the Asia-Pacific section. So the two biggest sections are Asia-Pacific and uh, Africa. So there's a lot of energy, tremendous energy in those two sections, including this one. Um, and uh, we've, we have publications, the Brewer and Distiller International, otherwise known as the BDI. Uh, think about it. Um, and uh, there's the Journal of the Institute of Brewing, which has been around for a very long time, which is a technical journal. Um, but, of course, we have the qualifications, so uh, a lot of qualifications, the basic 
um, certificates, um, and uh, right the way through to the diploma and the master brewer's qualifications. So there are all these uh, uh, tests, if you like, and, uh, and uh, evaluations of your, your fundamental knowledge as brewers and distillers uh, at different levels. So um, I've been a member for uh, way over 30 years now. And it's, uh, you know, being the president now is, is, is a great honor for, uh, for this particular uh, organization. It's, uh, the membership is growing. It's interesting times, uh, as I say, because uh, with consolidations, you know, there are always challenges in maintaining membership. But what would be great is to think that we have a burgeoning membership from uh, the craft sector, for the, uh, you know, from the, uh, for the smaller brewing companies, uh, recognizing that they can very much benefit from the knowledge base that is in the IBD. And one of the reasons that we wanted to talk to you is because as craft, uh, I, I think when Pete and I both started writing about craft, there wasn't a, a craft brewing industry. It wasn't known as craft beer. It was, there was a, went by a variety of names, but yeah. even the, the, the dreaded boutique beer. Um, we've seen the, the, the rise of craft beer. We've seen all sorts of experimentalism. We've seen a lot of uh, breweries uh, spring up. But as the wave has rolled on, we're now starting to see a focus um, less on the talk of the art of brewing and some of that uh, craftsmanship and there's been a, an increased focus on the science of brewing and some of those uh, sort of fundamental you know, scientific principles behind brewing. Um, yeah, um, and I think that's the correct way to go because at the end of the day, it's, it's, a, it's a, a, a business, it's a product founded on good science. And um, if you're going to make successfully good beer uh, repeatedly, and I'm a great believer in consistency and consistent excellence, you have to understand the science, and you have to understand what's going on. Um, so there is, a, there is a, 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 an art dimension, if you like, the creativity dimension, but it's all founded on good science and technology. Uh, and um, you know, unless you understand what is actually happening when you, you know, you're malting the grain, or you're extracting the grain, or you're you know, uh, brewing and boiling with the hops and so on, if you don't understand what's going on, uh, sooner or later, you're, you're going to fall flat on your face. And this industry depends, it absolutely depends on everybody doing it well. Uh, you've got one company that's making lousy beer, then it's going to drag other people down as well. So, um, you know, you talk to any of the really successful craft brewers, and I have a, an issue with the term craft as well, because I believe all brewers are craftspeople. It doesn't matter how big they are, uh, all brewers have got exactly the same issues. They all worry about the quality of the grain, and they all worry about the water and they all worry about the hops and the yeast and doing it consistently. Um, so everybody is a craftsperson and it really is important that they understand how to do things and to do it well. And if everybody does it well, the industry will continue to thrive and continue to be the world's favorite alcoholic beverage. Uh, and that's very, very important to me that uh, it's, it should be beer and uh, distilled beverages as well. <laughs> that brings in a really interesting idea where um, we're, we're starting to look into the notion of whether something's a fault or a feature of a beer. And in, in Australia for a long time, uh, and, and I still get it, people talking about how um, some of the international lagers that are now brewed over here don't taste the way they once did, and you know, they, they didn't. And it, it seems that on a lot of occasions, what they're missing is that slightly oxidised or slightly uh, stale note <laughs> that comes with a beer. And, but when, when that was all that they got, and that was the hallmark of a European premium lager, um, when that goes missing, they're not drinking a European premium lager anymore. Yeah, and, uh, and when, they, when you talk about um, staling and, and oxidation, it, it really does uh, hit upon a very difficult area because you know a lot of people are used to drinking imported beer wherever they are in the world, and they think, oh, well, that's great. 
Uh, and of course, the brewers have shot themselves in the foot um, because uh, if we were winemakers, we wouldn't talk about you know, cardboard and Tomcat pee. Uh, we'd say, oh, do you get a slight sort of damp parchment on this? And, uh, and, and a suggestion of feline. Um, and and you probably charge thousands of dollars for every bottle of it. But, but we don't do that. Um, but it, it is, a, it is a, it's a challenge because what you um, are brewing, when it arrives at the customer, that is what it should be like every time. I'm a great believer in consistency. And, you know, there's a well-known beer, which I won't name, but it comes in America in green glass bottles, and it, it's come from Holland. And, and people, people say, what's it supposed to taste like? Because if you, if you have it at Schiphol Airport, it's a lovely, fresh, beautiful lager. If it's been in a can that's traveled the ocean, it tastes like cardboard. If it's in a green glass bottle, it tastes like the anus of a skunk. Um, and, and some people like no, that. No, Charlie, this no. is Australian Brewers News. You don't have to pull your punches. No, I won't. I, you know. Well, actually, it's a gland close to the anus. Let's not get... Uh, but, um, um, but, but, you know, it, it, uh, it's how do you do that every time? I remember I was a QA manager at a brewery near Liverpool once, which is the biggest challenge of my whole life. But... Um, and we were accused that our beer was grainy, and we got rid of the grainy flavor, and our bosses were delighted. And that's when the beer started coming back to the, to, to the brewery. What have you done to the beer? And we considered it a defect, and the customer said, that's what we want. I, I'm looking across there, and there's the deputy president of the uh, Institute of Brewing and Distilling there. And, um, of course, one of the products in her portfolio um, is a product which is supposed to have a, a slight diacetyl uh, character. Uh, personally, I, I can't stand that character. Um, but if you took that away of that beer in that particular market, um, that people wouldn't drink it. So it's different things to different people. You've got to make it consistent. That particular beer, when it gets to America, is, is cardboard and Tomcat pee. Um, and in my, it improves it in that particular beer, uh, but, it's, it's, um, but it's, it's horses for courses. And, uh, and Catherine will forgive me one day uh, for saying that. <laughs> But as a, as a lecturer of brewing, where you want to bring out the best in your students and get them brewing well, it must be very, very hard to establish what an objective standard of quality is when customers will decide whether a fault is, in fact, a fault or whether it is a feature. Well, the, the, the fundamental issue is you need to produce the same product every time. Um, you know, somebody emailed me once and they said, you know, you keep talking about surprises. I like surprises. I said, well, you go, you, you go to the gas station, petrol station, you fill your car up, and you, you try to turn the engine on, and you go, rrr, rrr. you like that surprise? <laughs> uh, or you go to the doctor, and you're having your arm amputated, and the anesthetic doesn't work. Are you pleased with that, you know? So why would you want um, a product that doesn't sat satisfy you? So whatever it is, no matter what the character is, and who's to say what's right and wrong? You know, what the, 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 that's why I think it would be totally wrong for people in the brewing industry to do what they do in the wine industry, we have people who pontificate about what is a good wine or a bad wine. What is a good beer and a bad beer? Because the beer is what you like. It's not what I like. And what you like, what I like, and very unlikely to uh, satisfy. So if you like a gently flavored, subtly flavored, nuanced North American lager, go for it. That's okay. Uh, it doesn't make you a bad person to like that. But if you want something that's triple hopped with, you know, bull gonads in it, that's okay too, as long as it tastes the same every time, you know? Um, and, and that is the message we give to the students. And that's why shipping beer vast distances is, is a challenge. Um, and that's why the golden rule, basically, for anybody, in my opinion, is uh, drink the beer as close to the brewery as possible. So, so in my opinion, and people moan about this, they say, how can Bex be 
Bex if it's brewed in St. Louis? Or how can Bass be Bass if it's brewed in uh, New York? Well, I'd sooner have Bass in the United States brewed as close to me as possible rather than ship in a boat through, the, through who knows what weather on the back of a ship bouncing up and down. Um, it'll be better, it'll be fresher the closer it comes to me. And I, you know, as long as they're using the right malt and the right hops and the right recipe and the right yeast and the water, they adjust the water to get the right specification, the beer's going to be better brewed close to you. And so I, I don't see why it has to be brewed in, you know, certain beer has to be brewed in such and such a location. I think it's far better to have it done under franchise uh, as close to the customer as possible so that all of the beer will have the same characteristic, uh, no matter who is drinking it, wherever they are drinking it. I guess that's the then brings in the challenge of marketing, which isn't the scope of tonight. But you, you want to say something about marketers? No. <laughs> no. All I know is marketers carry with a jacket like that over the uh, and the, and they the, you know it's beer one minute and dinky toys the next minute and you know, prophylactics the next minute and you know they just market whatever it is and they have no no sense of technical matters in my opinion but you know if there are any technical pe any marketers in the room i'm sorry but that that's how it is yeah we we do try to screen for them they will <laughs> do we actually have any marketers in the room they will try to sneak in with the humans no no none here tonight so we're not going to we're not really going to offend anyone charlie speaking of technical and, and i guess of tradition uh this year of course we celebrate the 500th uh birthday of the reinheitsgebot um the german purity law and it brings to mind uh, something that you wrote recently about uh, about barley, and so is raw barley and, and and adding enzymes the same as? Can you skip that step of of malting barley and still have beer or great beer? You know, it all comes down to emotion, um, and and. Um and are there any chemical engineers in the room? People with no soul, no sense of the beauty of life. Uh, they always put their hand, yeah, Chuck Hahn, there you go. There it's you go. always interesting, um, Charlie. Usually people point to them. They rarely yeah. put their hand up themselves. I'll never forget, I was at a conference over here that. once upon a time. I was at a conference over here once upon a time, and Chuck Hahn asked a question. And uh, they were talking about a new, brewery, a new pilot brewery being built in a brewery not too far from here. And he said, did I hear you say that you were using malt? And, and they said, yeah. And he said, well, that's a first, isn't it? Um, <laughs> no names. Um, I had a boss who was a chemical engineer, and he said how stupid it is. You've got all this water going in and water going out. So, and the example he cited was you've you got, you got barley in a field in Denmark, which is a cold and wet and miserable place. Um, anybody from Denmark here? Um, <laughs> and, <laughs> and, um, and, of course, the first thing you have to do is to dry it and uh, to, otherwise it'll spoil and then you've got to store it to break dormancy and then you've got to uh, then you go to the malt house and you steep it over two days water in water out water in water out you sprout it for four days you dry it drive away all the water then you have to store the malt for, for four weeks and then you grind it up and you mix it with water and you extract it with enzymes and then you separate the solid from the, the liquid and then you collect the liquid and you boil it and you drive up and and then you ferment it, and you, you've got to have refrigerant and water. And, and, and he said, stupid, you just get bland alcohol and add the flavor from a bucket and add the foam from a bucket. And I said, that's not beautiful, and that's, there's no soul in that. He said, no. He said, but it's logical, and that will be the way it would go. And, uh, you know, over in the States, there are, there are things called malternatives, and you probably have them here. 
I think you had one of the first ones. Um, 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 what's the uh, the lemon drink? Two dog, three dog, oh, two, yeah. whatever. Back in the 80s. Yeah. Well, over there in the States, because of the tax laws, you make a very bland beer. You've got to put hops in, so you put a hop in. Um, and then you, after fermentation, you strip all the color out, and then you add the flavor, you know, whether it's lemon or lime or whatever it is. Well, why would you do that logically? You'd just take a bland alcoholic source. And the reason is, over there, it's taxed as a spirit if you, if you make it from alcohol. So Smirnoff ice is, ma is a beer. Uh, if you made it out of Smirnoff vodka, it would cost a lot more. Um, so logically, you wouldn't go through all this. And logically, no, you wouldn't malt barley. You'd, you'd, you'd take the raw barley and grind it up and add enzymes to it. And if you're going to do that, it's, it's a perfectly legitimate way to go. You can do it, but you've got to do it from day one. So you can't say, well, I'm going to make Han Premium, and we're suddenly going to do it out of this, uh, with this uh, recipe, and then we're just going to go to 100% raw barley. You will not get that beer. You can't make Budweiser that way. You can't make Sierra Nevada Pale Ale that way. You can't make, you know, Bogues uh, uh, that way. You can't do it uh, because it's going to influence the flavor. But if you're going to do radical things, you've got to start, start off by doing radical things. And it's a perfectly legitimate way to do it. You can take raw barley and add enzymes, um, but you just won't make existing products that way. I mean, that raises so many questions. I just don't know how many of the rabbit holes we want to disappear down. Um, if you do that, though, um, when I listen to you speak about the chemistry of beer, and I've recently listened to the uh, Beersmith podcast where you talked about the importance of the boil, and in most brewing diagrams you see in uh, brewing textbooks for consumers, the boil is all about extracting the uh, um, bitterness from the hops. Uh, but when you look at the chemistry, when you talk about the chemistry, there is so much going on on so many chemical levels within in there. Can you, do you think you really could replicate the soul of beer without going through that malting stage? Um, you, can, you can make an alcoholic beverage based on grain in all sorts of different ways. I mean, you mentioned boiling. And of course, traditionally, one of the ways of uh, extracting hops and the isomerization of the hops and extraction of the uh, alpha acids and conversion to isoalpha acids traditionally is by boiling. And there are still companies, for example, Sierra Nevada in uh, California, who insist on using whole corn hops. There's a long history, a long history of companies, including in this country very prominently, of uh, adding the bitterness to the finished product. And it's a perfectly legitimate way to do things. Uh, so you can take the, and if you really want to get maximum efficiency and use of the bitterness, you would add it to the finished beer. And there's at least one company in this country, been doing it for many, many years now, and they've sold a very large amount of beer. And a very good beer. So, uh, you know, you go over to the States, Miller, uh, they use chemically modified hops so that you don't get the skunky flavor and so on. So there are, the, 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 I, I think it'd be wrong for anybody, including me, to pontificate about what it, even though I am a pope, pope <laughs> um, to pontificate about what is good and what is bad. Uh, there are things I like and there are things I don't like. There are things I'm passionate about and I feel very strongly about. But that doesn't make them right. Uh, and I think that's the same thing for if other people say things, you know. It doesn't necessarily make it right. You, you end up going down the Trump path if you're not careful. And I wouldn't hate to do that. And, and I guess that's the thing. It's, it's, it's consumers ultimately make the decision about what matters to them. But as beer lovers, we find very much, I, I think that we are very invested in the drink that we love and yep. very much. And I, I started by talking about the art and the science of brewing. 
do you think that there can be a time when the art is lost and it just becomes about the science? And is that a good thing? Um, no, no I, I would like to think. I would like to think that beer is celebrated. Um, and, and people celebrate the product for what it is. And that at the end of the day, it's about quality. Now, quality is in the eye of the consumer. As long as you're making that consumer happy and you are satisfying their drinking experience, um, and there is an art to it, uh, but as I say, I think fundamentally there's a scientific uh, uh, basis that, is, that, that will not be denied. Um, you know, I'm fond of saying, well, you, if, you've got to, if you're a civilized drinker, you've got to put the beer in a glass, you know? Anybody who's civilized, anybody who's got half a brain will put the beer straight in a glass. Uh, so a few weeks ago, my wife Diane, who was in the audience, Charles and Diane from England, get it? Um, can, I, can I just interject and say how you know you, you see a lot of people talking, and you, know, you hear this phrase "walking the walk and talking yeah. the talk." Yeah. When Charlie came up the stairs, his whole party, including his wife and his friends and his friend's wife, all came up with full glasses of beer in their hand, and yeah. they looked like they. It, it wasn't one of those. Uh, whenever you see a politician, sort of uncomfortably cradling a beer just to be for the photo opportunity. They look like they've held a beer or two. No, oh, in, in the nicest possible way. <laughs> Sorry, that wasn't. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'll tell you something about it. Um, but, um, but, yeah, I was in a bar with my wife, and uh, there's a guy there, and he must have been about six foot ten with tattoos all the way down his neck, and he's drinking a Budweiser straight out of the bottle. And Diane said, go and tell him. <laughs> go. Go tell him. <laughs> Let me tell you, when I was the young... Did, did, did she ever... Does, when you I, go didn't, to I didn't say anything. I just sat there. <laughs> but when you go to complain about a beard does, and the person tries to sort of mansplain to you or tell you that you're wrong, does she ever say, don't you know who he is? No. <laughs> I tell you, I don't, she gets so cross with me because I go to restaurants and they can bring me the wrong meal and I'll eat it. I just don't complain. <laughs> so, so I'm in Portland, Oregon with her once and this beer came along and I went like that. And she said, what are you doing? I said, come over here. So this woman came along and she went, what? So I said, you need to know this beer did not smell like this when it left the brewery. So she said, um, well, I don't know, choose something else. And she went away and Diane said, do you know what I thought you were going to say? Do you know who I am? <laughs> and I tell you, and I, he, he probably not thanked me for saying this, but when I was a boy, I didn't want to be a brewing scientist. You know? I wanted to be a footballer. A uh, goalkeeper, I believe. I wanted to be a goalkeeper, Wolverhampton Wanderers. The, the guy who's sitting down there played for Wolverhampton Wanderers. So I, I had lunch with Brian. So, so, so he's my hero. So, so you're so our hero, and he's your hero. <laughs> that, that, my hero's right <laughs> down there. So, uh, and his wife. Big, right. big round of applause. Um, yeah, so, uh, but, but, you know, I, I, would, I would not have been in my rights to tell the six-foot-ten guy with the tattooed neck that he was wrong. Um, to, to do what he wants, if that's how he wants to drink beer. I remember giving a talk once in, in um, Madison, Wisconsin, and all these students were, were, were complaining that they take all these interesting beers, their, their words, back to their uncles and, and, uh, and, uh, and fathers and aunts and uncles and mothers and so on in, 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 in Wisconsin. And they said, don't give me that crap. I want to drink uh, Miller or I want to drink Coors. Or, you know. and, and that's fine. That is totally fine. That's what the majority of people want to do. So I think it, uh, the thing that really irritates me is when uh, uh, craft brewers, who shall remain nameless, such as Greg Cook, um, <laughs> um, bitch about the big guys and talk about yellow fizzy liquid. Equally, I don't like it when the big guys uh, try to uh, destroy the small guys. 
And I'm not talking about acquisition. I'm talking about marketing and nasty marketing strategies. Uh, technically, and that's where I, I, what I was leading on to earlier on, craft, brewers at all levels are craftspeople. And, uh, and the IBD and the Master Brewers Association and other organizations, we're all in it together. Technical people, no matter how big or how small, can get together and share technical knowledge and understanding. And that's so important. It's when it gets to sales and marketing that it gets brutal. And that's what I don't like. So, Charlie, just on that, um, you t uh, in uh, Grape versus Grain, you, you talk quite a bit about how uh, beer seems to be the only category that almost turns on itself. We've got a lot of people here, obviously. We're, we're singing to the, the choir yeah. in this room. And there are, but there are still so many new breweries coming up. Uh, I think it, some, at some point this year, uh, America will see uh, numbers that haven't been around since pre-prohibition. So we're 4,000 and, and, and counting. Uh, in Australia, we've, we've jumped over the 300 mark in a relatively short space of time. So the future's looking bright in that respect. Uh, for the, for the brewers, I guess, who aren't involved in the IBD at the moment, and we talk about those things of, of important elements of, of quality and, and quality control, the guys who are here tonight, what can they take away, uh, I guess, from the, the IBD for, for, the next, um, for the next conference? Um, you know, the, the IBD is, is one of the vehicles that allows uh, people to learn and, and to gauge how well they have learned. Um, and uh, that's not only the examinations and the qualifications, but it's also things like this, the convention. Tomorrow, um, the whole first day is, is focused on the smaller brewing companies, if you want the craft brewing companies. And, um, and, and, and whether it's a session on education or it's sessions on malt and, and so on and so forth, in all of the, of the elements, it is, it is addressing the, the issues that should be relevant to everybody. Uh, and perhaps, uh, you know, the larger companies, they've got extensive technical resources. They, they know it all. You know, they know, oh, they know a large amount of it, and they apply it uh, making the, the products that they are well known for. The, the craft people also need to understand, have all, all that knowledge and understanding. Over in the States, uh, you, I mean, you mentioned the States, the, the, something like the Craft Brewers Conference, there's more than 6,000 delegates, you know, and they're eager, eager for, for knowledge. I, I've spoken there. And I, I've had them, you know, lapping at, the, at my feet, and I've had them sat on the stage behind, and they're eager for knowledge. But I do remember somebody from Manoiser Bush coming out of one of the sessions once, smiling. I said, what are you smiling at? She said, well, they've discovered this, and we've been doing it for 20 years, you know. Um, so there's a tremendous amount of knowledge base that uh, is available. And the big guys have always been willing, at a technical level, to share that knowledge. And the IBD is one opportunity for doing that. And, it, and, it, and it's very, very important that, that it, it does happen because everybody needs to have that knowledge base. Uh, I say again that, uh, you, know, um, it, it, you know, many people are home brewers and, 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 and many of them are capable of making great beer and so on. But at the end of the day, it is important to understand uh, what you're doing. I, I run classes, shorter classes, and I got people come there and then they get an aha moment and they go, ah, now I get it. Now I know why I have to do that. Many of them are highly skilled. You know, people like, uh, historically, Ken Grossman was a home brewer before he started Sierra Nevada. He, he, you know, he, tremendous technical knowledge. Uh, but, of course, he would, would tell you straight away that his company uh, has moved forward on the basis of getting it right. 
You know, you really, I, I often say, if you want to read a book about beer, go to Amazon, put in the name Banforth, and there's any number of them there. Um, <laughs> but really, but really, you should put in the name Grossman, and you should read um, his uh, history beyond the pale. And if you want to realize the challenges of, of succeeding and getting to, to I mean, and I make no apologies for this. I mean, he has now got two breweries, and they are the two most beautiful breweries in the world. And he is, he's technically brilliant. Um, and uh, he threw away, was it his first six or ten batches? He just threw them away. They are not up to standard. He didn't believe he could make that product um, consistently and reproducibly. Only when he decided he could do it was he prepared to go public. That is what all brewers, no matter how big or how small, that's what they've got to do. They cannot get away by putting out inconsistent product that sometimes is brilliant and sometimes is, is undrinkable. And uh, that's important. We're seeing a lot of uh, home brewers who are you know, very good. They make a great, they, they, they make a great home you know, beer in their garage. Their friends love it. They fall in love with the romance of brewing and they decide that they're going to take the step and they'll start them, uh, a brewery. Can you make good, consistent beer just making that natural progression, or do you need a much more uh, technical background or technical basis? Um, I think you can go a long way. Uh, I remember judging, uh, I don't like judging beer competitions at all, but there was a, 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 there's a radio station, uh, the Brewing Network in, uh, in the States, and uh, I, I, I was on one of the TV programs there, and they set the challenge, and uh, under this tarpaulin, they had all this junk, you know, there were terracotta jars and so on, and they, you know, they were challenged to make themselves a brewery and then make an Irish red. Um, and I judged those beers. And I, it, it was in the departure lounge before I realized what I was saying. That, you know, some of the beer was better than the stuff made on my million-dollar brewery in UC Davis. Um, and, and if you've got a passion, if you know, if you really, do, as long as you don't break things, um, <laughs> if, 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 if you've got a passion for doing it, uh, and you do learn, and you do assimilate information and so on, um, as long as you know your system, and as long as it is, is half decent, you can make some, uh, some fantastic beer. Um, but you've got to hand it to those guys who are doing that on a you know, huge fermented every time. Uh, and, and people get very rude about certain styles of beer, but realize some of those big brewing companies are making beers that are they're not easy to do. You know, when I have the brewing contest at, at, at the university, none of them try to make Michelob Ultra. Probably two reasons, but one of them is it's very hard to make Michelob Ultra without a taint. Um, you can make, you know, a triple IPA mixed with Guinness with a little bit of funkiness thrown in, Brettanomyces thrown in, and you've know, you got an excuse for everything. Don't forget the hype. Don't forget <laughs> that. Uh, and you've got an excuse, and you say, wait, it's supposed to taste like that, you know? Um, uh, and, and that's fine, and there's nothing wrong with those beers. But even those beers, you've got to do them the same every time. So I think it's, it is all about consistency, and, uh, and you can do it on whatever scale you like as long as you understand, as long as you are a good brewer. In my opinion, it's important to be a trained brewer because if you're trained, then you really do, you really should understand not only the art of brewing but also the science. On my uh, flight down, I, I, I feel like I've heard uh, you all day because I was listening I'm to... I'm sorry. No, 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 no. 
I, don't, I, I was listening to a podcast, uh, a number of podcasts, just uh, refreshing both our own things that we talked about in the past and uh, the, the Beer Smith podcast. And uh, I, I believe that your lectures, you're not as active in the classroom as you once were, but they're re recording your lectures so yeah. people can download them. Now, are they going to be a free download or are they going to be sold? Oh, hell, hell no. <laughs> <laughs> no, I come pricey. Yeah. What was my fee for tonight? Anyway. Um, <laughs> You're drinking it. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, those, uh, those will not be free. That's, uh, so that's, um, it's a class I started a number of years ago called Introduction to Beer and Brewing, and it became the most popular class on campus. Um, 1,400 students per, per annum. Uh, it, the previous most popular class was a class on sex. And that, bec <laughs> and that became second most popular class. And you taught that as well? <laughs> no, I didn't teach that. <laughs> Um, I've, I've just got images of Monty Python in my no, head. No, don't, try not to imagine it. Um, and the third class was on nutrition, so it was, it was beer, sex, food, in that order. And, you know, that's logical, isn't it? When you, you know, they're bright students. But anyway, I, I, you know, I am, I'm, you know, it's hard to imagine, but I'm slowly winding down. But I, I don't teach that class in the classroom anymore, but we are putting it online. And it will be marketed through uh, uh, UC Davis Extension. So it's, it's very much an introductory class. Most people in this room are probably beyond it. Now, you, you had a bit of a chat about wine, a bit of a laugh, that we could make uh, beer so much more marketable if we use some of the uh, wine terms. A lot of people want to say that beer is the new wine. But they're fundamentally different drinks, aren't they? Yeah. Um, one's easy to drink, one's not necessarily easy to drink. Um, and, and one's you know, red, white, or pink, and occasionally a few bubbles, and uh, and is not a, and is not as healthy. Um, but um, no, no, I. Um, but what about all of those antioxidants, Charlie? Ah, <laughs> you probably uh, you know it's a leading question that you you got to drink 160 bottles of red wine a day to get enough resveratrol. You know, the active thing is alcohol, and I'm, I'm my atherosclerosis risk is way down. It'll be even lower in a minute when I get another beer. Um, <laughs> But um, there's so much more uh, nutritional value in, in beer, um, including fiber. Okay, it makes you fart, but at least you know you're alive. Um, so does everybody else. Um, but um, but only, only last month we, we proved that beer contains prebiotics. Uh, people talk about yoga and all this. Uh, beer contains prebiotics. And, um, and so it's, it's just a damn good drink. Here's your fee, Charlie. Cheers. Thank you very much. <laughs> yeah. Now, we might, uh, is, everyone's here for Charlie, so would anyone like to ask Charlie questions themselves? Um, hands up, we might bring the, the microphone around. Come on, don't be shy. You've all had a few beers. No, I don't bite back. This is the deputy uh, uh, president. So this, this, Vice president, this could be a Smith. question or it could be a backslap. This, this, well, this could be smacking my legs. Exactly. We'll see. Here we go. No, Charlie, I'm not going to smack your legs. Thank no. you, Catherine. Um, Charlie, tell everyone about the wonderful thing called yeast and fermentation. Yeast. Well, personally, I think yeast is a greatly overrated commodity. Um, <laughs> hang on, she's not done yet. But seriously, no. Um, Catherine, Catherine specializes in yeast, but I... Um, I was accused once of, of, of really uh, being a bit of a mystery to me, but uh, it's fairly important. It's fairly important. Um, but the malt, and, and uh, to an extent, John, the hops, um, uh, 
are important. All of, all, you know, it's, it's, it's all of it coming together in this beautiful, beautiful symphony that's called beer. On that note, it's a very, I mean, look, it, it's a very, very subjective question, but have we gone too far in the rediscovery of hops in, in the modern craft beer movement? No. When, when I used to, when I came over to the States for the first time from, from the UK, I used to say to uh, the students, you know, drinking an English ale hand-pulled from the cask was like an angel weeping on your tongue. This, this beautiful balance of malt and hops. And now when I go back to England, I, I go, God, they need, they need some more hops around here, you know? Uh, and it's amazing how how you really do you really do get hooked on the the lupulin if you like. Um, so um, you know, I remember saying to Ken Grossman the first time I traded his beers, I said, you know, be your beers are about as hoppy as I can take them. And he said, you know, 25 years ago I was brewing in a bucket. Now I'm brewing hundreds of thousands of barrels every year. Can I leave it alone? And I said, yeah, go for it, Ken. Do your best. And and his beers now are three times hoppier. Um, and I drink them very, very happily. So it is something, and, and I, I probably won't, I probably shouldn't say this, you know, but you know, the closest relative of the hop is um, uh, marijuana. And, um, you know, there is, I, I'm sure there is an element of hops that uh, is very, if, not the, if the word is not addictive, it is certainly pleasurable and calming. And uh, I personally now can handle some pretty hoppy beers. Uh, but when I first came from England, uh, I, I found it a challenge, to say the least. Uh, but they've grown on me. They, they've certainly grown on me. Uh, sour beers, I've not got there yet, but um, I'll, I'll probably manage it one day. So, Charlie, do you concede that perhaps our, our threshold, our lupulin threshold, perhaps, is uh, developing, uh, you know? Because, uh, for example, um, Sam Calagione from Dogfish Head was over in Australia recently, and... Uh, you talk very much about uh, drinkability and the, the test that you guys did with a half a pint and part of the, the testing was, would I go for a full pint? And so that drinkability, what we call, I guess, sessionability. Now, Sam described his 120-minute uh, IPA as a session beer for non-pussies. Discuss. <laughs> yeah, um, you know, we, at Bass we did a lot of work. Catherine may remember this on, on drinkability, trying to find a magic drinkability factor. And we, you know, and, and the way we did it was at the start of the evening, we were presented with three beers, three half pints, A, B, or C. And uh, you, you chose the one you liked. You wrote about it, you wrote some notes on it, and you chose the one you liked, and then you spend the rest of the evening either continuing to drink that beer or changing. And at the end of the day, they tallied up how much of each beer had been drunk, and the one that had drunk the most was the winner in terms of drinkability. And then they would send you home in a cab with a questionnaire and this questionnaire, you handed it to your spouse or your partner, and they filled in all these questions about the after effects and all this. <laughs> and um, it wasn't terribly good science, I don't think. All I can tell you is we never found any magic factor. We tried everything. We tried monosodium glutamate, and we tried uh, all sorts of stuff. All I know is that there were certain beers in the Bass sta uh, stable that were extremely drinkable. Um, and, and one thing that I don't think we ever explored why it was, there, there's beer from Sheffield, and it's called Stones. And if Stones was, or Stoneses as they call it in Sheffield, was on cask, hand-pulled Stones, 
It is the most sublime drinkable beer I've ever encountered. But if it was in a keg, it just wasn't. And we thought, well, it must be the higher carbonation. Um, and whether that's it or not, I don't know. Whether it, to the extent it's linked to carbonation. Having said that, I've got a colleague in, the, in Davis, a sensory scientist called Jean-Xavier Guinard, and he found a correlation between increased carbonation and drinkability. This tingle effect. So, you know, it, it, there's all sorts of ways of interpreting the data and so on. At the end of the day, uh, I don't think anybody knows what makes a beer drinkable or not. Um, it's just, to me, there are certain factors which detract from drinkability. And I will tell you, despite the fact that they drink more per capita than anywhere else in the world, I personally think that diacetyl, diacetyl, as I guess I should call it in this country, is a major defect in terms of drinkability. And I personally think it's stale beer, cardboard, detracts from drinkability. Um, but, uh, you know, it's, that's a subjective statement, and I have absolutely no data to back that up. That's merely my... And I, I'm not a big fan of hop extracts when it comes to drinkability. All right, we've got a question over here for you, Charlie. So I work in the uh, beer industry. Uh, I sell it. And I have a problem with the fact that there's so many beers just pumped out so fast pushed into the market going, oh, this is a thing, this is a thing, this is a thing, and then they die really fast. Um, how can we avoid this? That's a very good question. You avoid it by, um, by focusing really on your skills base, in my opinion, and, and many of it will be um, marketing pushed. And a lot of it, of course, is, is because people are trying to find a niche. They're trying to find a, a point of difference. Uh, they're trying to, you know, you know, and I say, well, you, you know, there are things we can learn from the winemaker, not many, but uh, there are things. <laughs> and, and, and one of them is, is we can celebrate our raw materials more. But if I say, you know, make the most of the malt and the hops, people say, you know, how do we get a point of difference? And that's why you've got things like Rocky Mountain Oyster Stout with, you know, rock. I don't even want Rocky Mountain Oysters on a plate. I certainly don't <laughs> want them in a beer, you know. Uh, or ridiculously, chi you know, intense chili flavors. And they, they're, they're all the time they're trying to find a difference, a difference, a difference, uh, hoping that some of them will win, and some of them will win through. Um, um, so I think people have, personally, uh, I'm not a marketer, I'm, not, I'm, a, I'm a brewing scientist. It's, I'm just a simple brewing scientist. I would be a disaster owning a company. But I think that people need to celebrate what they've got. And, uh, and do, do it really, really well. Um, and, 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 and get their niche by being known for, for producing excellent beer every time uh, without trying to go for gimmicks. gimmicks. Gimmicks only work, you know, I mean, you mentioned Sam Calagione. I mean, you know, um, you know beer made out of masticating the grain and spitting the, the grains into a bucket. Um, come on, you're only going to do it once, aren't you? Or beers, you know, 55% alcohol shoved into squirrels. You know, how many, <laughs> how many of these can you do, for God's sake? Uh, it's a talking point. It's a, you know. Um, so um, I, I personally think that, you know, the, the best beers are the ones that, are, that where there's real, it comes back to the art, I think, the, the love for, for, for the product. And without going for gimmicks. 
Sorry, just a brief intermission. Unfortunately, the uh, wonderful Four Pines uh, Kolsch, the uh, Kolsch keg is out, so it's a cash bar from here on in. And to, answer, and to answer part of Charlie's question there, the answer is six. six. There were six 55% beers stuffed into squirrels, and All the right. other six were stoats. Yeah, just yeah. there we go. Okay, question here for you, Charlie. Uh, hey, um, uh, thanks very much for the talk. Really enjoyed it. Um, long time. Was it the talk? I was just thought I was chatting. Really. Well, yeah, gas bagging. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was just yeah, interested in um, getting your idea on mouthfeel. So, ah. you know, alcohol, wheat, where yeah. do you see, like, most sort of mouthfeel coming yeah. from? I had a boss in, 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 in Bass once. His name was Gus, Guthrie. He was a, a Glaswegian. And Gus said to me, Charlie, we need to work on the texture of beer. I said, Gus, it's wet. He, he, said, he said, I know, I know, I know. He said, but there's wet and there's wet. There's um, no names, no pipe drill, but there's Coors Light wet and there's Guinness wet. Um, and they've got very different mouthfeels, and that's true. And, and a lot of people, including my predecessor at UC Davis, Michael Lewis, spent a lot of time trying to find a, a, a factor that influences mouthfeel. A lot of people talk about dextrins, the residual um, dextrins in the beer. And they say, well, look at a light beer with very low levels of residual uh, dextrins. Uh, and those that have got residual dextrins and, and the one with uh, more dextrin gives m better mouthfeel. Well, of course, the one that's got the lower dextrins has been more fermented, so there's more alcohol, which means more calories, so they dilute it down. So it's got more water in it. That's why it's got a worse mouthfeel. So I don't know that anybody has found too many things that influence mouthfeel. Carbonation certainly gives you the tingle. And the other thing is nitrogen gas. So nitrogen gas will give you a smooth mouthfeel. And in my opinion, it works very well with Guinness. I mean, many of you will have heard my story about this woman who emailed me and said, is it true the difference between Guinness brewed in Dublin and Guinness brewed elsewhere in the world is they marinate a dead cow in the beer in Ireland? So I emailed back and I said, madam, I've been part of the brewing industry for way over 30 years. I've never heard anything quite so stupid. Everyone knows it's a sheep. Um, <laughs> and, and she emailed me back and she said, well, thank you for letting me on, on the inside information. <laughs> but of course, nitrogen, nitrogen works great in a dark stout because uh, it smooths it out and it smooths away that harsh, licking out an ashtray burnt flavor, you know? Um, don't get me wrong, I love Guinness. I love it. Uh, um, but it doesn't work in other types of beer. So, you know, I probably shouldn't name them like Boddington's in a can um, <laughs> with nitrogen in it. Uh, but again, it's a subjective opinion. And that gives a very smooth mouthfeel. Partly it's low carbonation, but the nitrogen, even though it's a very low level, uh, influences the mouthfeel. And that's one of the few things that people, I think, have really confirmed does influence the mouthfeel. Never, you know, put nitrogen into a beer that's supposed to have a nice hoppy nose. It screws up the hop aroma. Um, but, um, but other things, you know, and I, I just say, you know, I think it's more molecules. I think it's, it's a beer like a barley wine with a lot of alcohol and a lot of everything in it. I just think they've got more molecules, um, generally. I don't think you can narrow it down. Some people say glycerol. There's not enough glycerol to reflect mouth. Some people say beta-glucans. No, there's not enough. You know, it's all of these things coming together, I think. But, but nobody really knows. All I know is nitrogen gives you a smooth mouthfeel, which works for some beers, not for others. Charlie, we've got a question over here from Brendan Virus. Charlie, you mentioned the Sierra Nevada beers perhaps were a little bit too hoppy for you when you first tasted them, but now you can drink plenty of them. Um, I guess the question is, is the lupulin shift, if you want to call it that, a real thing for everybody? 
Um, or, uh, you know, you hear about beers that they get, um, they were once considered hoppy and they're, no, they're now not hopped as much. Is that a real thing across the market or is it just people that are more... Well, I'm, I'm not a doctor, so I can't say whether there's a physiological effect at play, whether you, you change in your tolerance value to it. Um, all I do know, all I can say on that is that, you know, there are a lot of very hoppy beers now that are um, in the marketplace. And, and personally, I enjoy them. Uh, I enjoy them as long as they're in balance and as long as you don't have a really harsh coarseness to them. Some of them can be very coarse in their, their bitterness. Um, you know, I, I tell you, I was teaching in a class some while ago and, and uh, this guy put his hand up and I said, you got a question? He said, no, bingo. And everybody had a bingo card. And in it, all these squares were the things I say, you know, the things I routinely say. And this guy had clinched it with Ken Grossman. Uh, because I use those two words a lot. And he uses whole cone hops. And I think, I think that is, uh, I think that's the best way to go when it comes to getting well-balanced bitterness. As long as it, you know, it's, it's in balance. If you, if you try to get a really intense hoppiness on a, a fairly thin beer, it's a disaster. It's all about balance. It's getting, it's getting that body and the hoppiness in proportion. You raise an interesting point there, uh, Charlie. Beard consumption is on the slide, and there's a whole range of reasons for that. Um, but one of the things that I've often heard is that the change in diet and the you know, kids drink sweeter soft drinks and they drink more orange juice, and so they're not... The, the, the bitterness of beer is much more challenging for them. But when you compare that to uh, children, all children dislike bitterness, and it's one of those things that nature warns us um, that something may not be good for us because it's uh, bitter. Um, how can we, as uh, a, a brewing industry, reverse that slide um, and still encourage people to drink something that we are almost hardwired to avoid when we're... Uh, I, I, I guess it's very hard to wait for people to acquire that taste when there's so many other drinks that are being marketed to them that are much easier to, uh, to approach. Well, that's true. And, and um, you know, earlier on I mentioned these alternatives, alcopops, flavoured alcoholic beverages, whatever you want to call them. They're easy to drink. And I, I personally, I'm not a fan of them. We, we had them in Bass. Catherine will remember things like Hooper's Hooch. And, uh, and, and, and frankly, they're, they're sweet and easy to drink. And um, if you're not careful, it's, an, it's a fairly irresponsible route to take. And I know there are a lot of m some of the more diehards in Bass that were very much against it. Um, the best one in the world. I mean, you can imagine, you know, a, a, young, a youngster gets their first glass of Sierra Nevada Hoptimum, 100 bitterness units, intense hoppy nose, and they go, oh, you know, oh, that's good. <laughs> you know, and it's, it's a peer pressure thing. And, and then they'll, they will drink it. For, for peer pressure reasons, I think there is a. I think there are learning beers. I think there are there are trainer beers and so. On. And I think it is something that comes um, uh, when you get a little bit older. You 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 are looking for more as your taste buds deteriorate. You are looking for more flavor and more taste and aroma. Um, but I don't think young people uh, starting off. Um, it's, it's, whatever it is, it's got to be done responsibly. Um, and I'm very conscious of this when I you know based in. Uh, a university in California, you know, there are people who uh, 
um, out, they're, they're out to get us because we're teaching alcohol on a university campus. Um, so I, I've got to be mindful of responsibility. And I think it's, it's right that people should be responsible, um, that people should be advocating for drinking sensibly. And, uh, I, you know, if I use a word like train a beer, then, you know, there'll be people out to get me. Um, but but to, to, to uh, develop one's um, palate of, of, of taste as one matures, I think there should be a beer for all stages of your life. Um, and I, you know, I think it is easier to uh, drink many wines than it is some beers because, you know, it's the graininess or the hoppiness. Um, they, they can be more mature flavors to, to, uh, to take. Uh, and that, it's very easy for a brewer to say, oh, well, we'll just go the flavored alcoholic beverage route and serve everybody orange, uh, alcoholic orange juice. And I, I, I don't like that. Um, so I, I think uh, a palette of products for different people is, is a very good way to go. At the end of the day, uh, anything's better than the Kool-Aid that Donald Trump's passing around at the moment. We've got a question down the front from the man in the Cooper's cap. Oh, yeah. Well, uh, really enjoying the, the talk. Thank you for, for sharing with us. We, we do have a... Uh, All right. Yeah, yeah. Davis right now taking... All right. Not your class because he's not he in <laughs> Davis. He's somewhere else. But, you know, he How is right... How could he possibly be anywhere else? Yeah. <laughs> no. Oh, you, I you. see. Oh, I'm... <laughs> No, he's in Davis where... Well, I should be. Should be. I should Maybe. be. He's I paying money to listen to me, and I'm here. <laughs> yeah, I got gotcha. you. Do you want a rebate? What do you want? I, <laughs> I see. Yeah, when, when he told, you know, when he first said, hey, my professor who teaches me is going to be in Sydney, and I said, well, shouldn't he be in Davis? <laughs> that was my friend. No, I'm, I'm, I'm totally joking. Um, we um, have always thought, you know, uh, there are four ingredients to beer. A lot of people concentrate on the hops or the yeast or the barley or whatever. But water being the predominant uh, f factor in beer, how important is the quality of water? Or I mean, obviously important, but how, you know, filtering or it additives or the, the source of the water or whatever. It's critical. It's critical. But, you know, this is, this, this is a secret behind... Um, behind matching beer. And earlier on I said, you know, the best beer is beer that's brewed as close to the customer as possible. Um, and that, that is a challenge because the number one component of the majority of beers is water. Um, and uh, it can be very different. You know, it can be extremely hard or it can be extremely soft. Um, and people say, well, it's got to be really, really soft water to get a great Pilsner. No, it doesn't. And it, oh, it's got to be really, really hard to get a great Burton Ale. No, it doesn't, as long as you're consistent. And you can adjust the water to any, anything you want. You can take all the irons out. You can put all the irons you want in. And that is a secret. It, it, I'll tell you a story. I've probably told this before. But, but um, So I'm the Anheuser-Busch Entire Professor. That doesn't mean they pay me. And let me tell you, I do a lot of work that upsets them. So, you know, it's, um, but uh, but they're, a, they're a, a historically a very successful company. And I first joined University of California, Davis, and I was invited to St. Louis. And they, get, they asked me, would I like to taste beer? Which is like getting a, a white carnation from the mafia. You know, you, you. So I turned up on the sixth floor, and in front of me was Budweiser brewed in every brewery across the United States, from the UK, from Italy, from Ireland, from China, all flown in, and I had to taste them all, and I couldn't differentiate them apart. They were identical. 
Now that is the skill, that is the potential skill. Now whether you like that beer or not, that is what is entirely possible. So you have to be able to do it. So of course being smart, thinking, oh, I'm the Anna Bush and Dad Professor, I've got to show how clever I am. I pushed one away from me and I said, it's a little bit sulfury. And he went really quiet. And I heard somebody making a call saying, could you get me a flight to... <laughs> All because Motormouth was trying to be clever. And um, I vowed on that occasion never to open my mouth in that room again. Um, and that's what is, is entirely possible. Um, because most beers are at least 90% water. And you've got to work, look after it. What idiot would brew a beer with water that has a taint in it? You know, so that, you know, what you should be doing with water is, first of all, making sure it's absolutely taint-free. In Bass, like other, any other responsible company, we used to taste the water as often as we tasted anything else. And every time we did something to that water, we tasted it to make sure we hadn't changed the flavor because it was going to be the number one component of our product. And it's the same for any beer, no matter how hoppy or how you know, uh, malty or roasted, whatever it is, the water has got to be looked at. One over here, Charlie. Cheers. Um, following up on that question, and uh, sp specifically the part about having beer brewed in all parts of the world that are dang near identical, in a global commodity market, when all of us, even small brewers, can buy ingredients from anywhere else in the world, so we choose, in your opinion, what is, if any, the role of terroir in beer? Um, it's, it's a marketing tool. It's like it is in, in the world, well, it's a little bit different in the world of wine in that, you know, for the majority of wineries are, are, uh, are on estates that are close to the grapes. So, in, you know, we have Napa Valley just over the hill. And, of course, you, you talk about that. Uh, the quality of the wine is probably more to do with the architecture of the winery than it has um, with the quality of the winemaker. And, of course, you know, in the wine world, 40% of the fermentation stick they don't ferment uh, efficiently. And then they blend it away and tell them how smart you are, you know. So, I mean, it's all founded on incompetence, for God's sake. Um, <laughs> but brewers could do that. Brewers could do that. You say the only, the only legitimate Burton pale ale is brewed in Burton-on-Trent. You could play that card. But by the time that beer got to Sacramento, or by the time it got to Sydney it probably wouldn't be the beer you want to drink, you know? And who knows what it's going to taste like. It depends on what extremes of climate it's been exposed to and so on. So it's entirely possible to talk about terroir. But is it wise and is it a sensible strategy? And I, I personally don't think it is. So I, I, I have no difficulty whatsoever with, with franchise brewing. As long as you, are skill, you have skilled brewers that are operating to a, a, a recipe, and that's important. It's the, it's, the, it's the standard operating procedures, the specifications for the raw materials. As long as you specify the malt, you specify the hop variety and the characteristics, you specify the yeast, how you're going to use them, you specify the water composition, you specify the shape of the fermenter, you do all of those things. At the end of the day, like I just described, you should be, make, be able to make exactly the same product anywhere in the world. And I'd far sooner have that product fresh, delivered to me locally, than shipped thousands of miles. All right, Charlie, we're nearing uh, the end of our sort of our set official time, if you like. Uh, we've spoken a lot about tradition and about the past. 
um, and a little bit about the present. So if I can take you into, into the future, what's the one main thing you think that we're, I guess, you talk a bit about how nothing really is new in beer. It, at some stage, it's all been it's all been done. So, what is the the big and remembering? Like, so, what's the big future for beer? Remembering that you've spoken before about beer being used as both a douche and an enema. So, yeah, maybe know. just. <laughs> well, that's true. Um, I, I was actually on campus, and, and this I, I said that beer's been around for eight thousand years, and in that time, it's it's not only used as a drink; it's been used as a hair shampoo, as you can see. Um, <laughs> It's been used as medicine, it's been used as a douche, it's been used as an enema. And this guy put his hand up and he said, excuse me, I said, what? He said, what's a douche? I said, it's this far away from being an enema. Um, <laughs> and, and, and he said, he said, I don't understand. So I said, I'll draw you a diagram. But, um, but it, did, it didn't help at all. Um, you know, it's very really difficult. So, sometimes, Charlie, in the lab, a practical demonstration is really yeah, the is, only yeah. way some people will get it. Well, I, I, I never mind. Um, you know, it's very difficult to, to say. You know, I, I, was, I was talking to Brian earlier on, and I, 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 I said, you know, you, you could be transported back 500 years, and if you went into a brewery, you'd recognize it. You'd recognize a brewery 500 years ago. Um, all the same unit operations, milling, mashing, Boiling, um, you know, fermentation, they're all there. Um, what we've done now, what we are great at is, uh, is, is we're far better at control, measuring things, doing things more efficiently, consistently, not wasting things. Um, so we're good brewers. We can make the same beer brilliantly every time. Um, all the technical development these days, you know, you know look at the, the brewing companies all over the world, including uh, this country, New Zealand, you know, the numbers of technical people involved in terms of research departments is far less than it ever was. You know, but people, when I joined Bass, you know, we had a huge research team that I was research manager of. Catherine was part of it. Um, down here, you went to you know, Foster's, you went to uh, Tattoo's, and all, everybody had technical presence. Um, Miller had a huge, uh, Guinness had two. All of these people beavering away at doing fundamental research. Uh, all those days are gone. What people are doing now is how to make beer more efficiently, more reliably, fewer employees, lights out breweries, sensors, more efficient packaging regimes, cheaper packaging uh, materials, less light weighting, all of these things. Um, so all of the de developments probably are they're not probably going to be in the, in the region of um, radical new ways of brewing. If you look at um, any sizable brewing company, the major cost components are the package, putting beer into the package, taxation, sales and marketing. You know, those are where the, 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 that's where the money is, you know? So it really doesn't make sense to screw around with the raw materials. Uh, okay, costs money. But pr primarily the major areas are, are not there. It's all to do with the, you know, the, 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 the non-fundamental the non chemistry end, if you like. Um, it, the one technical challenge that is face, that faces brewers is keeping beer fresh. Uh, and if you, you could package a beer um, in Sydney, you say, um, and ship it thousands of miles, and it tasted the same when you got there, that's when terroir would, I would, I would buy it, you know, and say, it's, it, this is how it tastes in Sydney, and this is how it tastes in uh, San Francisco, and it's exactly the same. But 
I don't know that we're ever realistically going to get there. So in the future, I think it's going to be more, uh, it, on the actual technical level, I think it's continuing going to be more in, in terms of process efficiencies, packaging efficiencies, um, and um, economies of scale. Well, that brings the uh, formal part of tonight to a close. Um, firstly, I'd like to thank everyone that came out on a Sunday night to, to join us uh, to, to chat with Charlie. I'd like to thank the team at Beer Deluxe uh, King Street, uh, Joe, Gracie, Christina, AJ and Dan for the wonderful, they've been terrific. They, we, we approach them with the idea, please, big round of applause. <laughs> they just opened last year. Uh, actually, one of the things I wanted to ask, I was chatting to Dan, who's the, um, the, the, the seller man here, and uh, Pete and I spent a lot of time talking about some of the bad practices that go on and how uh, lines often aren't cleaned. Um, here, that on Monday nights, they, they, they clean their lines here every Monday night and they actually make a feature of it. So they have a clear the line Monday night where they, they sell off all of the beer on the lines and they clean it. How important is, you, you can brew the best beer in the world, Charlie, but how important is looking after the beer oh, once it's in premise? That's critical. I mean, uh, you know, I, I'm fond of saying that when a beer leaves a brewery, you know, it's usually pretty damn good. And the people who are going to screw it up are the people who, who sell it. And whether it's pouring it, you know, in the States, I mean, it's criminal, criminal the way people serve the beer in the United States. You're lucky to get a glass. If you've got a glass, it's dirty. It's, um, and, and, you know, you go into these bars, there's 30, 40, 50 beers on tap. I remember being interviewed in the San Francisco Chronicle. They say, you go into a bar, there's 30 beers on tap. Which one are you going to choose? I say, one in a bottle. Um, <laughs> If I go into a bar, I always say, which of these do you sell the most of? Now, this beer tonight is excellent. Uh, Chris Wilcock. Where is Chris? Um, over there. So, and uh, four Pines, Chris from Four Pines is the head brewer over there. Um, well, well done. Well done. Um, and that's, that's now, what I was talking about earlier what, on. What is your view of a, uh, an Australian brewery brewing a Kolsch? Well, well done. <laughs> as long as you can pronounce it right. Kurt. Kirsch. No, no, but, but <laughs> um, no. Um, so I mean, that's what I was talking about earlier on in Portland when they had the, the the butterscotch flavor. I mean, it was pediococcus in the line, you know, and and it's it's a disaster, and so that's why I always say, you know, which do you sell the most of? Because that's the one that's going to move. If you've got somebody, obviously, people here do know what they're doing, and they clean those lines and they're moving the beer around, and there's not beer sitting in a keg, and there's not beer sitting in the line. And, you know, and they're pulling it through and they're, they're moving it through. Great. But if, if beer is not being looked after, then it's, it's a disaster. And it's criminal to the customer. You've got beer served in dirty glasses, greasy glasses, you know. I tell you, I, I was in San Francisco International Airport not long ago, and I went to a Gordon Beersh establishment. And the first thing I did, I did do you have the staying stay here? They carded me. They checked my age. Glasses, yep. And I said... How, how badly do you think I've lived, for God's sake, you know? <laughs> uh, and then I ordered a Gordon Beersh Hefeweizen, which happens to be the best Hefeweizen in the United States. And they brought it me in a Bud Light glass. Now, there's nothing wrong with Bud Light, but it ain't Gordon Beersh Hefeweizen, you know? Yeah, people say, what's the right glass? It's the one that's not got the wrong name on it, you know? <laughs> you know, respect beer. You know, Diane and I, years ago, we were at a, a friend's house in, in Belgium. And he asked me the most stupid question of all time. He said, do you want a beer? I said, yeah. <laughs> and he said, well, what do you want? I said, what do you got? So he read no, 10, 20 beers. And I, and I said, just anything. 
And he went away. And 15 minutes later, I said, Guido, where's my beer? And he said, I'm trying to find the glass. And he says, you know, own home. And he would not give me a beer unless it was served in the glass for that beer. That that is respect for beer. I understand. I understand that glasses get stolen. I understand all those things. But, you know, oh, for goodness sake, give him a glass. Charge somebody for the glass. Here's a glass. Here's $10. Here's the glass. You can take it away at the end of the day evening, or you can return it. Uh, any of those things. But you can, you can do reverence for beer. And it's, it's, it's what is important. The presentation is critical. Foam is critical. Um, I, I used to, I'll tell you a story. I, I mean, I see Nick over there. Yeah? First time I ever had Cooper's sparkling Nick Sternberg, uh, head brewer for Cooper's, Nick. Is that your operations manager for Cooper's? So first time I ever came to Australia, I, I, I got myself a Cooper's sparkling ale. And I went back to my seat, poured it out, looked at it, I took it back, and I said, it's cloudy. <laughs> and, the and the guy said, it's supposed to look like that, you pommy bastard. <laughs> I said, it's delicious, thank you. And, and, but that, that's another story. I, I, you know, do you have the Outback Steakhouse over here? So in the States, we have the Outback Steakhouse. So I, I go there, and, they say, and this woman of immense charm, she said, what do you want to drink? No, no, she said, what do you want? I said, well, a menu would be a really, really good start. And so the menu came along, and she said, what do you want to drink? I said, a Cooper Sparking Ale, please. She said, do you want a glass? I said, yes, why do you ask? She said, well, we don't have many, and we don't, we don't want to run out. I said, if I'd asked for wine, would you have asked me if I wanted a glass? She said, don't be stupid. Now, what do you want to eat? <laughs> it's reverence for beer, uh, and that is critical. So... Thank you very much to the guys at uh, um, Beer Deluxe King Street Wharf. Thank you very much to Chris and the team at uh, Four Pines for providing the beer uh, tonight. And that really uh, brings a close. Charlie, you don't have to race off. Uh, you're happy to, to have people come up and... He did, sorry, yes. Dragged out by the ear. And, and you're happy to have a few photos taken or anything like that? There's, no, uh, there's nothing in your well, rider. As long as I have to leave my clothes on, we're okay. But... <laughs> My, 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 our youngest daughter is only 21 now, but, but when I was in Playboy uh, four years ago, she took the photograph. But uh, she's, she's a published photographer in Playboy. But I was fully clothed. Um. And uh, this has been a recording of uh, Radio Brews News. Uh, you can get be part of the beer conversation at AustralianBrewsNews.com or BrewsNews.com. Um, I had to say that because otherwise... Dot .au. BrewsNews.com.au. I had to say that otherwise James would have been upset. But... Genuinely, thank you very much for everyone for coming out and thank you for uh, sort of keeping the, the, the noise down as we recorded. And I, I think that is a huge testament to uh, the respect that everyone in the room has uh, for you, Charlie. Uh, so thank you very much for making uh, time in a very busy social schedule and a very busy work schedule for joining us tonight. A, a huge round of applause for uh, Charlie Banforth. He never comes through here, so it's not an open bar. The bar is still open. We're, we're welcome to stay sort of, as long as you guys like. Uh, so enjoy yourselves, and thanks again for coming. And we're out.